Hello and welcome to the Doc Arena podcast in association with Film Ireland. My name is Ross Whitaker, and in this fortnightly podcast series, I talk to filmmakers about their documentaries, both in terms of the subjects they choose and the way in which they fund, craft and distribute their work. In this episode, I'm delighted to speak to Jamila Wignot about Ailey, her feature doc, which is available in cinemas and on demand across Ireland and the UK from January 7th, 2022. The film is an immersive, archive-rich profile of groundbreaking and influential choreographer Alvin Ailey, founder of the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theatre. The film captures this brilliant and enigmatic man who, when confronted by a world that refused to embrace him, was determined to build one that would. Here's the trailer. Do you feel as though you had to sacrifice anything to stay in dance? Everything. The Alvin Ailey American Dance Theatre is one of the most important contemporary dance companies in the world. People were just, oh my God, they'd never seen anything like it. Choreographers start with an empty space, a body or two, and we say, carve the space. I love creating something where there was nothing before. I was born in the Depression, 1931. Rural country, tough times. When I was 14, I discovered the theater. And it touched something in me. But there was no bodyguard. Alvin entertained my dreams that a black boy could actually dance. Being able to say through the choreography, I am. It transcends dance. I had my own ideas. Not just to do a step, but to feel something. He was working at a feverish pitch, totally immersed. People say, why is he doing that now? If you're a black anything in this country, people want to put you into a bag. This is what he took up as his crusade. Alvin's protest was on the stage. I want to feel all the anger and the sense of cursing at the outside room. I wanted to do the kind of dance that could be done for the man on the streets, the people, that it was part of their culture. And that it was universal. Hi, Jamila. Thanks a million for joining me on the podcast. Just to start off with, would you mind talking a little bit about, um, in your own words, what the film is about? Ailey is um, a documentary portrait, uh, really, about legendary dance maker and choreographer Alvin Ailey, who founded the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater, one of the sort of most well-known and popular uh, dance companies in the world, really. Uh, It's told largely through his own words, um, along with insights from his closest and key collaborators that he worked with over time. And really, um, it's a story of becoming, really following Ailey's journey to, you know, being sort of pulled toward dance and ultimately this um, understanding what it took for him to create the institution that he did. Talking about him as a man, firstly, what was it that drew you to him and, and to tell this particular story? So when... We set out to make the film. Originally, I was just drawn to, you know, this extraordinary opportunity to work 
um, on a film that would allow me to live in his dance works. I wasn't very familiar with his personal story, you know, other than, you know, things I'd heard in the years attending um, various Ailey performances. Um, and so that was the initial, the initial draw was to be work, making a documentary film that would be so visually um, rich. And then, you know, once I began to do the research and sort of, you know, get deeper into his life story, you know, I, I was just really amazed at a story of somebody who, who didn't have any of the pedigree to be entering the world that, um, that, you know, he, he ultimately entered and succeeded in, um, you know, he's a gay black man from a very working class, working poor background, um, who somehow, you know, finds a way, uh, finds a way to kind of make a world for himself. Um, and that wasn't an easy journey in any way. And there was a lot of, you know, there's this interesting duality to him, this kind of lightness and darkness that you actually see mirrored in his dance works. And so, um, that was really fascinating. And to be honest, um, very relatable for me, uh, as a black woman who grew up, <laughs> you know, in a small town in California, uh, my family, our earliest years, we lived in a trailer park and, you know, I, sim I just was drawn to, um, to his strength and also his vulnerability and his courage. I'm embarrassed to say that I didn't know that all that much about him, although I knew his name and what he was famous for. When you're approaching a documentary like this, where you know the subject and maybe in the States or in certain environments, it's, it's a well-known story. How did you think about balancing that so that people could come to it entirely new at the same time? Yeah. And you know, what's so intriguing is that I don't think even in the States, he's, he as a person is very well known. The company at this point is um, who and what he is. He is sort of synonymous with this dance company. And it's been many, many years since since he passed in 1989. And, you know, so I think some of, um, you know, the success of the company has, has eclipsed the founder. Um, for me in approaching the story, I just wanted to be with him and live with him. And I'm really interested in point of view. And so it wasn't so much to try to create a film where, you know, we were trying to get buy-in to say, you know, or trying to, it wasn't about working too hard to sort of create a film that's for the uninitiated in any way. It was about if I can make you fall in love with this character, this subject, because he is for me, you know, immensely relatable and lovable and, and his journey is so extraordinary. I wanted to create a film that would hook people into that so that what you were interested in is being with him on the on his road to discovery. You know, I think at the top of the film, you know, one of the things we struggled with was sort of the opening. And, and, you know, we for many, many, many months had a film that just sort of, you were right in with him and the notes we were getting back, you know, or that, you know, it's that we have to give somebody a little bit of something. So it's interesting that we, you know, we ended up deciding to, to open the film with him receiving his highest honors um, and not to give away too many spoilers, but you know that you later find out in the film that in fact that moment is incredibly fraught and complicated for him for for many reasons. Um, 
So, yeah, I mean, I think what was so wonderful about working on this film and what's been so wonderful in the screenings that I've attended here and even, you know, feedback I'm getting from people who are who work with and have danced for the Ailey organization um, is that they are discovering him in whole new ways um, and and seeing him in a, in a in a new light. So that's so that was kind of the great the great part of it. Yeah, it's a really enjoyable experience to feel like you're watching a master at work to a certain extent but then his his personal life or his internal life is more so revealed as you go through it which is really rewarding as you're going through the film when you're dealing with a character that is new to many of the audience that you kind of have have to earn the right to go back in their story and, and where you go back to in their story and it's a really tricky editing question that you've touched on there can you talk a little bit more about that and and how much you felt you had to reveal before you could kind of go back in his life. Because to me, chronology is always very helpful because someone's life unfolds in a certain way. And if you bounce around too much, then you can actually lose the emotional weight of, of certain events and, and how they happen. So I'd be interested yeah. in kind of how you approach that. Yeah. So that was so tricky. And we had a film that was like very, very chronological for a long time. Um, including holding off on um, arriving at his first dance work, uh, Blue Suite, for like a really, really long time. And what happened was we were just, we were making a film about a dance maker and it was like, but where is the dance? I mean, we had, you know, we deliberately were making choices in our archival selection about his, you know, early years, particularly those critical years in Texas that are so deeply um, a part of the kind of early dance works that he makes, his blood memories. Um, and we were making deliberate choices to always include, you know, obviously when he's talking about the sort of social dance world that he encountered, we could show that. But even in stuff that was just, you know, people, it was always images that were um, in movement, you know, so that part where he says, I remember people coming home in the twilight and we found that great piece of archival of these bodies in silhouette, um, you know, coming home, trains moving, you know, people crossing fields. Um, but it was for a long time, it was like, well, <laughs> are we ever going to get to the dance? So we just had this braid that was a little bit tricky of wanting to establish him in his life, you know, having the contemporary through line, which always gave us an opportunity to go into dance and then sort of, well, when are we going to get to Ailey's dances and braiding all of those in the early edits and staying with chronology actually proved to be problematic. And so at some point we said, well, what if we just pitch forward and give you a dance early because we've arrived at something thematic. And once we kind of arrived at that with his life, it actually opened up, you know, a, a kind of portal, let's say, to how to better deal with even the contemporary um, dance material where we started to really understand that everything was about the sort of tentpole themes of his life. Um, and yeah, it was it was very hard. And, you know, it's funny, too, because I think it's a documentary requirement that people come into documentaries and they kind of right away want to know, like, you know, sometimes filmmakers will do that sort of cold open, you know, almost like a trailer at the top of a film where you're like, hey, here's all the famous people who think this famous person is really important that maybe you haven't heard of is really important. They give you that blitz of like 
don't worry, this film matters. <laughs> this person, hang with us and you'll see. And I really um, I totally understand the reasons for it, but I really chafed against it with this film. So for, you know, arriving at the kind of bookend that we did, came very late for me. I find the openings of, of films always the most challenging and it's always the last thing that I end up making. And for me, you know, his early years, that's the like heart and meat of it. And I, I couldn't, you know, it's like, what do you mean you're not interested in hearing this man's, you know, particular take on, um, you know, what it means to grow up you know, black and and working class at a very particular time in our history, um, when you, you know, Jim Crow era is the in many ways the most violent, you know, period for black people, and and there's a you you come of age in a nation that that literally despises you, um, and that has often been how we have treated race, and yet here was a person whose dance works were were actually kind of ignoring all of those outside forces. And he's saying, but this culture is incredibly rich and there is so much resource. You know, when he says, you know, we, it was a time of love and a time of caring. It was a time when we didn't have much, but we had each other, like that's it, you know? And so I struggled with it and I still do. I mean, I, I hate the, the formulas and the expectations. And as a viewer myself, I don't feel like I need that. Like, you know, I, I just am, I'm here for the ride. I'm going to, the film's going to unfold, right? So I'll give you 15 minutes <laughs> to get there. Um, but yeah, that, that can be that, that challenge and that sort of requirement um, is one that I, I find frustrating. Yeah. And it's a funny one because I've often sat watching a fictional film and thought, well, they didn't do something at the beginning to make me interested. I'm here and I'm willing to watch. And if I feel like there's something that I can sense is about to unfold or will unfold over time, then I'm willing to go with that. And it's interesting you use the word formula because they are almost like new formulas um, in, in a way of trying to oppose an old formula. But uh, yeah. uh, anyway, we won't dwell on that. But the because you've already asked, asked you twice, but um, then when I'm watching a film like this that has so many elements to it, you think of the contemporary bits that you've filmed, the archive, and, and we'll talk more about that um, later, but there's a lot of different types of archive in there. There's his audio recordings in interview. There's the shows themselves and the rehearsals and so on. How did you find all of that material? Was any of it difficult to find? And how did you think about bringing it together to trying to make it a cohesive piece of work? Yes, that last, uh, <laughs> the last part of your question, bringing it together to make it a cohesive piece of work is, uh, <laughs> was the, the labor and the late nights and the um, anxiety. Um, cause we knew that it could, you know, but it was, it was, a, it was a road to get there. Um, so in terms of finding the materials gratefully, and this is not always the case, uh, you know, in documentary, it, it, the Ailey company actually has, um, a repository of materials that were housed at the library of Congress. Um, so that includes, they're not the master materials, but it includes essentially, recordings of, you know, a, 
a critical mass of the of the dance works that have been filmed over time. They also had, uh, you know, the still photographs and many of those images. And then, um, like, really gratefully, they had those audio recordings that um, that Mr. Ailey conducted in the last year of his life as part of a process of making an autobiography with a writer named um, A. Peter Bailey. So, um, you know, part of our access building to the company um, was to get them to hand over these these um, materials, you know, to trust that we, that, you know, that we were going to be responsible, <laughs> you know, truth tellers, um, you know, of this, this legacy. Um, so that material was really amazing, but we actually got that, you know, after we had already started filming with the company. So we did the, we did the rehearsal filming first, and that was another kind of moment of serendipity when we approached the company to first pitch them on the idea of making the film. We said, you know, and, you know, Ailey's legacy, I mean, Ailey doesn't die in 1989 in the sense that he, his vision and his legacy carries on. So for me, a portrait that would just be birth to death would be not a true portrait of him because really it is true that there is a kind of spirit that lives on. So we said, you know, we'd love to have access to the company in some way, like maybe there's a young dancer. We don't really know. Would you be open to it? And Robert Battle, the artistic director, said, this is very weird that you're coming to me today with this because I just really got off the phone with Rennie Harris and we've invited him to set a work for the company for the 60th anniversary. So that was like, wow. But that doesn't mean, you know, that's Rennie Harris, a choreographer who's on his own journey to make a dance work that isn't, it's not like he knew exactly what he wanted to do. So we come into a process that's very raw. And for me, thinking about, oh, a contemporary dance work, is it actually going to relate to the biography? How much and how will it? And, you know, that was kind of an uh, being in a bit of the wilderness that you were in when you're making a documentary. And then we knew we had the material for Ailey and that was wonderful. And then sourcing the, the sort of archival um, world that we knew we wanted to set him, him in was a whole other... Um, endeavor. And I should say, you know, we were doing all of this in the time of COVID. Uh, our edit room opened the, the day that New York City shut down. So it was, you know, a real scramble about whether we were going to be able to get the materials so that added another layer of complexity to it. But, um, you know, what was key for us was this idea of blood memories, which was also kind of an, a, a sort of inspiration point for Rennie, where for I think both that dance work and our film, it meant that in some ways Ailey's life is all encompassing of, of the sort of totality of the black experience. So it's everything before him that's part of his DNA and then sort of everything after him. And it meant it freed us really to be able to create much more of an impressionistic um, documentary where we weren't literally trying to be, oh, this is Ailey's mother. This is, you know, we didn't have eight millimeter, you know, super eight or whatever home movie footage of his life. But because we were in point of view, we were really trying to recreate the world he might have experienced. And so that was really instrumental. But, you know, it felt like when, when we were at the end of the edit and we were, you know, you're in that sort of precision time of trying to make everything work and, and is the story cohesive, my editor and I just kept saying like, oh my God, this is like conducting an opera or something because, 
even the rhythm of the editing, it's the image, the pacing of the images had to, had to, you know, relate to the pacing of his, his language. And then the music had to come in and, you know, so there, it was, um, I think just even in, in terms of the experience of the cohesion of the film, that was, I mean, just micro <laughs> edits towards the end there. And then storytelling wise, again, as I say, I think really realizing that themes, uh, you know, sort of staying with where he was thematically. Um, so, you know, discovery, joy, triumph, loneliness and alienation, um, mental health, you know, we were finding ways that the work that Rennie was doing was really um, channeling that spirit um, or channeling that kind of emotional journey. Um, and it's no coincidence, I think, that, you know, we started to feel like the film had to feel like an evening of dance because Ailey's dance works are so deeply personal. So when you're watching Revelations and you're thinking about the emotional journey that that dance work takes, it's because he is saying this was my journey too. Um, and so we, we had a guide there, but um, I mean, yeah, I, looking back, I, I'm also like, how did we, <laughs> how did we get here? I mean, it, it was really um, a challenge, but, but staying with him thematically um, was really what was key. Yeah. And I think it so often is that the themes are what guide you you know you, you kind of start with the story but then you you when you start understanding what the story means in terms of themes then it, you almost have to remake it again don't you yeah and we had a lot of also just stripping down i think at some point the film was dense with talk and we finally arrived at a place where we realized that you know sometimes i think especially with a kind of voiceover driven film like this that voiceover a lot of times is actually scaffolding and you arrive at a place where you realize, oh, actually, you know, image is working enough now that in tandem, the words and the picture are doing the work. So we can pull, we can start to pull out some of this unnecessary, you know, too obvious or, or you know, for us, <laughs> we thought, um, you know, exposition. And let's get to a place where you're really just at it's the essential amount of information that marries with picture. And we really also work to make a film where those images matter. Like nothing is B-roll or wallpaper as we could sometimes talk about, you know, it was like, you should be you, this, what's happening with movement, what's happening with the archive should be informing you about what we're trying to say or, you know, where he is at this particular time um, in his life. So. Yeah, I hate the word B-roll. It's all A-roll, you know, it's all... Yeah, exactly. You know, if, you, if, you, if you're in a visual medium and the pictures are the B-roll, then it feels like something is going wrong, you know. But um, just going back a step, I suppose, you mentioned gaining access. Um, and I wondered a little bit about... Because in some ways, the film is very timely for a number of reasons. Uh, you know, I won't go into them because people can discover themselves. Um, but it's But it's also a lot of the story happened a fair amount of time ago. From your point of view, why was it a, how did you answer the question, I suppose, why now? And, and, and how did you ensure that you got the access that you needed? Yes. Um, so the why now question, again, 
don't you find it so frustrating, that question? <laughs> Why not now? Um, and I think with somebody like Alvin Ailey, um, you know, he is evergreen. His works are timeless. They are, they are dealing with um, universal themes to all of humankind, right? So it is set in a very specific experience, but the the kind of enduring power of the company and why it continues to um, be able to tour globally is because people understand what it means to be wherever you fall uh, on the spectrum of human existence. We all understand alienation. We all understand connection. We all understand a search for community. We all understand a kind of, um, you know, the need for transcendence. And I don't mean that as, you know, oh, we escape, we we finally succeed and arrive at the place of maximum joy and happiness. I just mean we yearn for a kind of sense of wholeness. And I think so many of his dance works are dealing, um, dealing with those kind of essential, you know, if you want to call them Shakespearean, right? Like themes. Um, so he's, he is always going to be relevant to what's happening at any given time, because, you know, human as humanity continues to wrestle and struggle with, um, with these, these questions. Um, at the time that we started making the film, it was 20, end of 2017 when we were thinking about it, 2018 when we um, secured access to the company. So, um, you know, a lot was happening, you know, in the United States in terms of these sort of waves of, you know, the, the sort of, um, Unfortunately, deeply unfortunately, the continued struggle of Black people in this country um, remained very real. And it's partly, you know, I think you see that in a very visceral contemporary way through Rennie Harris's work, Lazarus, um, which was why we were so excited about um, working with him and how he was going to treat those dances. So, um, you know, so I think we just made a case for his his evergreen nature, but it took us five years to get the film made in part, large part, I think, because people, you know, dance is not um, the most supported of the arts uh, here. And, um, you know, who was this guy and does he really matter? You know, all those questions that we had to kind of duke it out and battle and show people, um, you know, the, the kind of film that this could be. Um, in terms of gaining access to the company, it was really a process. And when I think about the way that we, our production was structured, which was just by happenstance. I realized that um, that even that was a kind of uh, dance with, you know, we went to them, we explained the kind of story that we wanted to tell, and they first gave us access to filming the rehearsals because that was sort of first up. Um, and I, in hindsight now, actually, and it's funny, I've talked to Robert Battle about this, I realized that was a proving ground. Um, in many ways, because we were given access to a rehearsal space. It's a completely delicate time, both for the choreographer and all the dancers who are learning a new dance and are being filmed as they're doing it. And we always intended to have a kind of fly on the wall, unobtrusive approach. But I think we showed a great, over those five weeks, we were we showed the company the way that we can be here and be present, but not be intrusive getting in the way, bulldozing, or, you know, any of those things. So I think that was one space of earning trust. And then I um, typically like to have conversations with every person that I interview before I film them. And so I had lunches or phone calls um, 
or multiple lunches and phone calls with many of the people who were in the um, company because I want to I want them to get to know me um, and to be able to ask me questions freely outside of the the film space and and you know and to develop a kind of rapport that hopefully carries over into the interview um, setting and so again another space where I think they could get a sense of you know the approach that we were taking um, and then you know getting the archival in the end was I think that trust that the company had. I mean, when they gave us the the audio cassettes, that felt like a moment where, which came, you know, at the end of having done the recordings, I, I knew that they existed and we had, we couldn't quite figure out if the company still had them, but, um, you know, I think that was the ultimate sign of them saying, okay, you know, we have no editorial control. You guys can go off and do whatever it is you're going to do. Um, and we're, you know, we're giving you our, we're giving you our founder and, you know, have care or, you know, the kind of ways that you want to, there's a trust that has to be built there, you know? So that was a very delicate process that continued throughout. And gratefully, the company is very, very happy with the, with the film, but I should say that some, some people, you know, um, it is it is a rawer portrait of him than than has ever existed before, and I think that's that's delicate, you know. Um, so, I feel like we arrived at a place where we have, um, you know, we put something out there that's true, and it's warts and all to the degree that it could be warts and all, um, because he remains elusive still, which was something that ultimately we in making the film decided to just accept like the absence, the very fact of the absence is a statement in and of itself. And it's interesting to have dealt with somebody who maintained so many of those, those barriers. Right. Um, I'm going beyond your question here, but, (laughs) um, but yeah, I mean, all of that, you know, is, is the hard work of, of making these kinds of films, right. That access building, especially, um, is very challenging. That difficulty of just allowing him to be himself, you know, and, and not trying to confect something to go, um, to maybe find a way of drawing him, him more out of himself than he was. Was You say that at a certain point you accepted that, but was there a journey to accepting that or, or things that you tried a- along the way? Yeah, there very much so. I mean, it was it was a source of you know, real frustration um, because he compartmentalized so well. Um, And so we just, there was a way he worked in the world of dance that was, you know, so self-conscious, I guess, let's put it that way. He knew that there was a kind of persona to present. And then this other side of him that we really, um, couldn't find people who had access to it. He wasn't really spending time with the company outside of, with company members outside of um, the dance world. You know, he's also, he was the same age as the earliest crew of, um, you know, the, the earliest dancers who made up the the earliest company. But then by the time, the, so there's sort of collective of people that we have in our film, he's maybe a decade older than some of them. And so- there's also that distance um, and them, you know, really seeing him as this, 
this kind of father figure um, or as, you know, Chaya said, which I was so grateful for his honesty in that moment when he tells the story of being invited to Ailey's apartment, you know, one time and knowing that he wanted a closeness and then Chaya chooses not to go in because he prefers to have him on a pedestal and what that means when at some point, maybe you don't want that loan, maybe you want more intimacy and connection, but you've created a set, a version of yourself and a world in which that's where people feel comfortable um, with you. And so that's another kind of level of heartbreak. Um, he was very much, you know, the 1950s in the US, which is when he's he's starting his company, 58 is Blue Suite. He gets State Department funding in 1960. I mean, we're barely addressing racism at this point, much less dealing with, um, you know, anything related to sexuality. And in fact, you know, the opposite is happening where we, you know, this is a time of we're entering the McCarthy era and there is a deliberate act to purge um, gay people from, you know, government positions, sexuality, you know, homosexuality is a, is a mental illness at this time. So this is not a time when anyone's going to be, <laughs> you know, flying that flag, let's say of, uh, you know, it's not a time where you could you could embrace and present that. And, and in that sense, he is very much in keeping with his contemporaries. So Merce Cunningham, Paul Taylor, both very renowned um, queer dance makers who were not understood to be that in their time. And I think even in their obituaries, people don't mention it. I mean, it's it's just that is your private life. And then there is your, your public life. And those things are very distinct. Um, and so it was, yeah, it was very, it was a struggle to, to not be able to get access to kind of more of that personal side. And, you know, the other part of it is that I don't, in the end, this loneliness and also insecurity, which he talks about this sense of maybe not being totally comfortable with how he's seen, you know, that moment when he says coming from where I come from and and dancing on the Champs-Élysées. Like he can't square that difference. And I don't think that's just sexuality. I think that is, you know, we talk today a lot about intersectionality and the idea of you can't separate us out into our various affinity groups. And it's everything about him. So it also was um, a challenge to, it was a challenge to say, we can't actually in good faith pin this on any one thing. Um, and I don't know that it is. I think there are just more than anything, he seemed like somebody who just had trouble creating intimate relationships of any kind, friendship or family or, uh, um, you know, or romantic. And I don't know that we can say that that's purely because of, of sexuality. Um, I think there, there is something else that's there. And intriguingly, I often in making the film, my producer and I, and my editor, we would, we would say like, you know, if he were straight, would, would this expectation of be here? Like there's a way in which I started to feel that everybody wanted to make it about his homosexuality because we think about homosexuality in certain ways and we expect the tragic, the self, the, you know, the sort of shame, the internalized homophobia, which no doubt existed. I don't want to pretend that he didn't experience those things. But it was also, it became clear that like, if this were a film about, you know, a straight 
artist who had no intimate relationships of any kind. I don't think people would care like, oh, but who was he sleeping with? And why didn't we get access to that? And, you know, so it, it, there was some interesting, I just started to think about, you know, even the expectations of, um, of uh, you know, what we expect when we come to stories dealing with queerness. Um, and so that also became another, it just is, it remains a huge question mark for me. Um, and it's why I ultimately was not interested in having anybody kind of speculate about those things. I think loneliness and, in, and vulnerability and inability to create intimacy is, again, universal regardless of, you know, your sexuality. So that's the person that we were, we were, you know, presented with. I feel like it's better to understand that he was like that and that he was kind of covert and that he was influenced by these multiple pressures that were on his life. And as a sensitive person, he struggled with that rather than to to know everything about all of those things and everything he thought about them. It's better to present him as he was, I suppose. Um, you mentioned earlier, you know, the the pressure of pitching it and people asking questions about why now and, and, and these kinds of things. When you then get to the end of the film and you've done it, you know, how did that feel to, to get there and, and how has it been to bring it out into the world, I suppose? Oh man, the <laughs> getting there was, I mean, it was a relief, you know, we, um, you know, for us, it was that we had submitted to Sundance actually with a, a rough, you know, a rougher version than the final film. And so then we got into Sundance. It was like, oh my gosh, we have to hurry up and finish it. And it was just this like, you know, I think we had basically six weeks to like really get it to the shape it's in now. And in those six weeks is like everything started to happen. Like, oh, finally we're getting, you know, this footage and we're seeing the masters. We're able to, you know, make these final decisions in terms of even the archival dance works that we're showing. Um, the story started to refine itself. Our composer had delivered um, the music. I love the music in this film and uh, he just really came through. And then once we were in, you know, with the sound design and all of that, um, yeah, it just, it felt amazing. And then being able to present it, um, you know, to premiere at Sundance was terrific. And we got picked up by Neon, so we had a distributor. It was sort of, you know, five years prior, we're like, well, we really think this film could be big and we really have these dreams for it. And okay, we're going to try to make it. And, you know, you just get into the process. And at the end, it was kind of, it's very unreal that I think the film has succeeded in all the ways that we hoped it could. Um, and audiences are getting introduced to this figure and, you know, Sundance was virtual, so I got sort of emails and, and text blasts from people who had seen the film. But really, once we once we had our theatrical in New York and were actually, you know, we um, screened at Lincoln Center. So, you know, a space that Ailey dances at and the, having people like that real audience experience and having people who actually knew him come up to me and say, oh, my gosh, a some people said, did you know him? And I said, no. And they said, that's. I mean, this really feels like it's true to him. And that was the great gift, you know, and, and seeing the emotional um, responses of, you know, people who continued to kind of dedicate their lives to Ailey. So I did a panel with Sylvia Waters, who's in the film and is, you know, the archivist and ran Ailey too. And we opened up the Q&A and, you know, she was like 
still crying. You know, she and she had said, I've seen the film on my laptop many, many times, but I'm actually seeing it on the big screen for the first time. And it's just a very different and emotional experience. And that felt very rewarding. Um, yeah, I think it's a film you want to see on the big screen because of the dance and the scale and, and all those kinds of things. One last question for you that I ask everyone in these interviews is, if you had one piece of advice to give to someone who was starting out um, wanting to be a documentary producer or director, or maybe a piece of advice you wish you'd had yourself, what might that be? Boy, <laughs> that's a huge question. I mean, for me, I guess it's coming from the space that I'm in now. And it was, it was in large part sort of the requirement of this film, which was it actually required me to be more vulnerable than I think I have been in my previous works. I think um, I tend to just want to stay in my brain and approach things in intellectual ways and, you know, whatever I'm feeling. And, uh, you know, I don't know, there was a way that this film like required me to actually be, to speak with my collaborators in a kind of more open and honest way. And so I think I wish that I had known earlier, I mean, that, found collaborators, you know, that's key. Please find your key collaborators, people who support you, people who value, you know, your your vision for whatever film you're making. Like you really need those kinds of people um, in your court. And and then also it's okay, it's okay to not know what you're doing. <laughs> that's gonna happen. And when you don't know, it doesn't mean that you don't know what you're gonna ultimately do with your film, but it's okay to be lost and it's okay to ask for help. Um, I think especially for directors, there is this, I think I have some idea that there's this sort of supremely confident, you know, director figure who's always in charge and always knows exactly what they're doing. And, and um, I mean, maybe that person exists and kudos to them if they do, but I, I feel like I'm, it's been good for me to come into my own and realize that it, again, it's okay to be to have a have an idea that you know or kind of hope for uh, you know a hope for something, um, but you really do need to to be vulnerable and ask for help. So I guess that's a bumbling, fumbling way of <laughs> of getting at some bit of advice. Okay, well we are out of time, so thank you so much, Jamila. It's been a pleasure thank talking you. to you. I, I hope we're going to see the we're going to see the film released here in the UK and Ireland at the beginning of January so it's i think it's a great time for cinema going and and hopefully people a lot of people will go along and enjoy it so well done to you thank you no problem take care thanks again to Jamila for taking part in the interview Ailey is available in cinemas and on demand across the UK and Ireland from January 7th 2022 thanks to Stephen Galvin and Film Ireland for supporting this podcast and to film composer Michael Fleming for kindly allowing me to steal his music. You can find more of it at michaelflemingmusic.com. And thanks to you for listening.